Portland Computer Services presents the Baseball Lifer Podcast. Well, hi there. Don Wardlow here, your baseball lifer in residence. Before we get to our guest, David Finoli, the Roger Kahn of Pittsburgh, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about some baseball that's going on this weekend. First of all, and foremost in my eyes, you've got the regionals, the college baseball tournament. The Connecticut Huskies I've been following for many years. They're going to be down in Gainesville, Florida, with the regional down there, and their ultimate opponent would be the University of Florida Gators. If Connecticut won that tournament, they would play next week in a super regional at a site to be determined. The Maryland Terrapins, another college team I follow, are going to Wake Forest in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Wake Forest is number one seed in the country for college baseball. And assuming that they would win this tournament and Maryland would lose, Wake Forest would host the Super Regional next week against an undetermined opponent. And by the way, LSU is number two seed in the country after Wake Forest. And to the major leagues for this weekend, we've got some good action going on. The Twins opened up a four-game series last night against the Cleveland team. As we record this, it's Friday, June the 2nd, and the Twins got three in the eighth and one in the ninth to beat Cleveland by a 7-6 final. Cleveland has got a 25-31 and 31 record. They're six games under, and for a team that was in the playoffs last year, that's a disappointment. A couple of three-game series opening up this weekend. The Astros and Mariners are going to get together in Houston. And I don't know about either team's pitching very much, but I know both teams can hit. And that's a small ballpark, so you could get some 10-9 to scores out of that series. And the Yankees will be out at Chavez Ravine, taking care care of a three-game series against the L.A. Dodgers. And that's always exciting when those two traditional rivals from days of old get together. And they don't do it that often, even with interleague play. Now, with the new schedules, they'll face each other once a year. When we come back, I'm going to bring on a guy that I've only known by way of Facebook. And I can say that about a couple of our earlier guests, authors Andrew Linker and Eric Sherman. I'm both familiar with primarily through Facebook and Eric Sherman years ago, sent me a copy of one of his books. But a lot of the guests we've had up to now have been guests I've known personally in one way or another. But David Finoli is another character. He has written books about Pittsburgh and its athletes, baseball, football, hockey. He's written books about Pittsburgh the way Roger Kahn wrote books about the Brooklyn Dodgers. 50 years ago, his most famous one being the Boys of Summer. So David Finoli does that for Pittsburgh, and he's our guest. After a word from Portland Computer Services. 
I am having such a problem at work. This is the second time this month I have had two computers down and I can't get my computer company to come to the office and fix them. I think they are too busy with other bigger companies. You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when the computers are not working properly. I need somebody that can come out, see what's wrong, and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the internet these days. They have been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an a rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860. 732-356-8860. Courtlandcomputerservices.com. Tell them you heard about it on the Baseball Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of computer services. Back on the Baseball Lifer, Don Wardlow here with David Finoli. And he is, shall we say, the Roger Kahn of Pittsburgh. David, <laughs> welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Roger certainly is, is a, a hero of mine. Love his stuff. He wrote about Brooklyn, and you've written about Pittsburgh. Man, have you written about Pittsburgh. Many a book here we'll be talking about before this show's over. But tell me about the first Pirates game that you went to. Well, first game I went to um, was actually in uh, in New York. Uh, we were visiting uh, my Uncle Ed. He had a, uh, a house at Point Lookout on Jones Beach and um, took us to Shea Stadium in 1969 to see uh, – uh, the Pirates uh, play the Mets, and that was that was my first baseball game I ever went to. I was I was eight at the time. If you remember, was it when the Pirates lost the doubleheader, where both games were one to nothing? No, no, no. It was um, um, the Pirates had lost the game. It was it was uh, middle of the year, but um, um, I know later on that year, Bob Moose uh, uh, actually threw a no hitter at Shea Stadium. Um, I did not, unfortunately, see that game, but that was uh, that was my first experience with the Pirates. Yeah, my first baseball game was at Shea. Three seasons later, I was eight in 1971 when I discovered baseball, and my first Mets game was against the Cubs. Now I remember well listening to the last Mets game of the season, 1972. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I could remember which broadcaster had the microphone when Roberto Clemente picked up hit number 3,000. And I was a little kid, yes, but on New Year's morning, when I heard that he'd been killed, I just, I felt physically sick. Oh, that that was, um, I, I still remember every, every uh, moment of that day. We had, um, uh, we had been to the Steeler game earlier in the day. They were playing in the AFC championship game against uh, uh, the Miami Dolphins at uh, Three Rivers. And, um, you know, they had they had lost a 21-17, a close game to the 
um, to, to the Dolphins. And uh, we were home feeling pretty good. And the next morning we got a call from my aunt uh, Libby, who was a, a diehard pirate fan. She's sobbing. I didn't believe it till I got on TV and, and saw it and started sobbing myself. And just a tragic day of a guy who was always more interested in doing things for humanity than himself and, and, and the game. And, and even today, uh, on New Year's Eve, the statue at PNC Park of Roberto Clemente will be filled with, uh, with flowers. It, it's still considered by people of my generation, our generation, as, as uh, Pittsburghers, as, as the most tragic uh, uh, day um, when Clemente went down. And, you know, I didn't know the words to say at that time. As I've grown older, I understand what it was that I was feeling. It it didn't occur to me until he was killed that baseball players were flesh and blood and they could be killed just like anybody else. It just didn't 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 hit my nine year old mind. And when it did, it was a jolt. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it was, um, you know, still. When, when that uh, anniversary comes up, I still, you know, get a little choked inside and, um, you know, but also remember what a great human being he was. And, and, you know, you don't, you don't always see such a combination of, of, you know, here, here's a guy, he not only had to go through uh, the process of discrimination is all um, uh, who, who, who came across there. Um, during the time period went through, but he also, with his language barrier, as as one of the first great Latin players in this area, went through discrimination uh, a, a little worse than than some of the African Americans probably went through um, at that time in the game. He was always he was a brilliant man. He he had not been a ball player. He was studying to be a chemical engineer, and. Um, I was reading an article. I decided uh, uh, last night I couldn't sleep, and I pulled out a baseball digest from 1960. And when they quoted him, they quoted him phonetically, which used to drive him nuts because he always felt it made him sound stupid and um, and, and that they were mocking him. So to have to go through that, to have to go through, um, you know, is, is the, the players on the team really uh, thought he, he – wasn't always committing himself to the game early on, didn't have the greatest relationship. Um, and then he became a leader as, um, as his career went on and the pirates decided to aggressively go after Latin American players. One of the first teams to really do that, which led to their success in the seventies. And he became a team leader. And, and by the time he was finished, um, he was doing such great things for humanity and trying to make sure that, uh, uh, supplies got to earthquake uh, ravaged Nicaragua because he didn't trust the Sandinista government would get those those supplies to the people that needed it so much. And, you know, you, you just rarely see people put themselves out like that. And, and it's it's always been a source of inspiration for me. And I got to touch the statue of Roberto Clemente that stands in Cooperstown, as you enter the Hall of Fame, along with the statues of Jackie Robinson, yeah. and the third statue is Lou Gehrig. Yeah. 
So those three stand as you enter the gates in Cooperstown, as you enter the building. Our guest is David Finoli, author of many, many books about Pittsburgh. And the newest one, and the reason we've been kind of focusing on Roberto Clemente, the book is called Pittsburgh Sports in the 1970s, Triumphs, Tragedies, and Championships. That'll be out in September. It can already be pre-ordered. You can get it from Amazon. If you know any place other than Amazon that sells books, you can contact them, see if they've got it. Uh, Amazon is my go-to. So I'm sure number 21 is in there. But what else is in Pittsburgh sports in the 1970s? Baseball and beyond. It was was a unique um, time period if you were a a sports fan. you know, back then, I mean, people know of the Steelers as as one of the most successful franchises in NFL history at this point, uh, a record six Super Bowl championships. But back then, um, as the 1970s were coming in, they were an embarrassment. They had been to one postseason in their first 40 years and, and were, were drubbed by the Philadelphia Eagles in 1947 um, in that game. And they mostly spent their time in last place. Um, their drafts were one of humiliation usually. And as the seventies were coming around, Dan Rooney took over for his father and hired a man named Chuck Knoll, who may or or was uh, part of some of the greatest drafts in the history of, of, of the league. In fact, 1974, they end up there for their first five picks. Um, Lynn Swan, Jack Lambert, John Stallworth and um, Mike Webster all make the Hall of Fame, which is what I consider the greatest draft in the history of North American sports. And Donnie Shell is a, a non-drafted free agent, also makes the Hall of Fame. So the rookie class has five Hall of Famers. But um, it's about it, it's a stories about how the Steelers turn themselves around. Stories how the Pirates um, had if not uh, probably the second uh, greatest run next to the um, uh, Cincinnati Reds. They win two world championships. They win, um, I believe, six uh, division championships. Um, and you you have, uh, it tells of Pitt's 1976 national championship in football. Um, a local college, Westminster, wins four championships during the decade. But it also tells of the great tragedies that also occurred. Michelle Briere, um, who was on par to be the original Mario Lemieux and savior of the franchise, dies on his way to his bachelor party in a uh, well, he, he he's in a, a coma for about a year, but eventually passes away. He would have been the guy to lead the Penguins to greatness early on. Um, it tells, of course, the Clemente uh, story. It tells of Danny Murtaugh dying at fifty nine. Um, it, it tells of Bob Moose who pitched a no hitter, um, in 1969 at Shea Stadium for the Pirates, um, who dies in an auto accident on his birthday. So as many highs as we had, there were a lot of lows, the 1972 NLCS, when it looks like the Pirates are are about to go to the world series to face the A's and they fall apart in the ninth inning uh, of game five against the, uh, Cincinnati Reds and, and, um, end up uh, losing that, which is Lamenti's last game before he he dies a couple months later. Um, 
tells of the Penguins becoming this only the second team in North American sports history to blow a three nothing lead. But it looks like things are about to turn the corner for such a bad franchise. And and then they lose four games to the Islanders in, in 1975. And, and months later, they're in bankruptcy. Um, so as many great stories as as there are in the 1970s and we relive all of them. Um, we also uh, uh, have to uh, uh, live some of those tragic moments too. On the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow here. David Finoli is the guest, baseball chronicler of Pittsburgh. And I've got to add one name, uh, another man who is enshrined in Cooperstown and absolutely should be. Mm-hmm. The Gunner, Bob Prince. Now, you were a kid. Did you, as a kid, get the the coolness of the Gunner, Bob Prince? I honestly didn't. I'll be very honest with you. I had to grow up to appreciate what he was. We 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 loved him. Um, I I remember. I mean, you know, from a from an era where not every game was on uh, TV. So we would sit outside in the summer. I had my little round orange uh, Panasonic transistor uh, uh, radio that we would listen to the gunner on. And he was, we all would loved his, his gunnerisms. Uh, Kissed goodbye uh, by a Nat's eyelash, uh, bug loose on the rock. Um, you know, we would, we would all know those things. And we, we were crushed. And that's, that's a story in the book when he, um, is unceremoniously fired by um, the triumvirate of uh, Westinghouse Radio, the Pittsburgh Pirates, and uh, Iron City Beer, the three people who made such decisions back then. Um, in retrospect, as, as, as you know, I grew up and listened to some of those broadcasts, you kind of understood he, he probably was becoming a bit, a bit too uh, big for his britches and and um, as I listened to some of the broadcasts again, you know, he'd kind of go off on tangents and not hear, you wouldn't hear much about the game. But um, when Prince was in his prime, though, he was just a joy to listen to. And I was at the game when he came back in 1985 against the Dodgers shortly before he passed away. And the moment he takes the mic, the Pirates, who were a bad team at the time, just explode. Um, I think they scored 10 runs at any, I'm not sure, but it was like in honor of him that, that, uh, they have this great inning in a bit a bad year. And unfortunately he dies a couple months later, uh, I believe of throat cancer. And when I say I grew up and learned to appreciate the gunner now, if something is a near miss, I'll say just by a Nats eyelash. <laughs> Even even though I'm not a broadcaster anymore, there are still lots of near misses in life. There's lots of chances to use that expression. And I'm sure a lot of people give me some blank looks. But since I'm blind, I can't see them. There you go. There you go. Talking to David Finoli, his newest book is Pittsburgh Sports in the 1970s, Triumphs, Tragedies, and Championships. It'll be out September 4th. And just because that's his newest, there are many, many others. Now, before I get into some of these books, was it always your wish to be a writer? It was always mine to be a broadcaster, although initially I wanted to be a country disc jockey, not a baseball broadcaster. 
But did you always want to write um, write great baseball stories? I did. I, I graduated from Duquesne with a degree in journalism. Didn't have a lot of confidence in, in my abilities at that point. Um, and I, I had an offer as a, uh, to be a stringer at the, at the Pittsburgh press, but, um, I ended up taking a, a job as an assistant buyer at a, at a, um, a local retailer in Pittsburgh. It, it paid more money. And, um, as I said, I didn't have a lot of, uh, uh confidence in my abilities at that point. And yeah, I, I went through, uh, I went through my life always wanting to, I, I loved history. I loved uh, I loved baseball, and I always wanted to write uh, books, but never had the confidence to to do anything about it. So, finally, in in uh, two thousand, my wife, uh, uh, who had to hear my constant, well, "What do you think? What do you think?" finally basically told me, "Look, either submit this to a publisher, or forget about it." You know, because this is all all basically I do is is you know what do you think? And I, I don't do anything about it. So I had the confidence. I, I reached out to McFarland. I had an idea about writing about baseball in the United States during World War II and um, reached out to McFarland Publishers, which uh, they, they do have a fabulous line of uh, sports books. Baseball is their, is their focus. And luckily on my first shot, um, they, they bought the idea and I was able to publish my first book, which was like the joy of my life. And I thought this would be, you know, this would be it. You know, I, I did my book and that's it. And then luckily, uh, Sports Publishing Inc. had, uh, had uh, seen some of, uh, had seen the book and knew I was a pirate fan and they were doing uh, team encyclopedias. So um, me to put a proposal in and I did with my roommate, uh, Bill Rainier from Duquesne. And uh, they bought it, and we did the Pittsburgh Encyclopedia, and that's where the career really took off. I'm glad you went with the book, For the Good of the Country, which was published in 2002. If you didn't, I was going to go there. Because with Pittsburgh, you're in your comfort zone. You were brave to take that very first book and go out of your comfort zone and really out of a lot of people's comfort zones. You had to do some serious digging to find information about major and minor league baseball during world war ii oh it, it was it, it was tough at first but then it became an obsession and it became a joy and and you know i i was i was always inspired at duquesne there was a, a little bar called van brahms uh, right near the school in the hill district and and we would go down there at night and there was this table of world war ii veterans and while my friends were watching the games, I, I would always sit with these guys and listen to their stories. We're just so inspired by them. And that was probably the inspiration for wanting to do the book on baseball during that time period. And, and I just had an opportunity to talk to guys like uh, Hugh Mulcahy and, and um, Cecil Travis, uh, Bert Shepard, um, who, who pitched with uh, one leg, uh, was hurt during the war, you know, got the opportunity to talk to Bob Feller, who he was a cranky SOB on one end, but on the other end, you know, while he wouldn't, he was very evasive talking about his time in, in World War II, but he opened up when I started asking him about the Negro Leagues. 
and he was a real proponent of of getting these guys in the majors um would do some barnstorming with them and and you know he always told me he goes everybody thinks josh gibson uh, uh would have been the greatest player of all time but you know what he he couldn't hit my curveball and you know i always thought that was an interesting bit but then again when you look at it not many people could hit bob feller's curveball so um um you know, it was it was just an inspiration to. Um, I mean, Hugh Mackle Mulcahy gave me this uh, um, great, nice, long letter um, uh, answering my questions. He was ill at the time, and the day after I received the letter, he passed away. Um, so it was probably the last piece he had he had talked about uh, in his career, and I wanted to make sure I got his story right and his because his nickname was LP for losing pitcher. He was a great pitcher, but he was with those Philadelphia um, Philly teams that were lousy. And he he had the lowest uh, winning percentage of somebody with 100 decisions. But um, I wanted to make sure I got his story right. And and his daughter sent me a nice email after the, the, the story or the book came out, um, basically thanking me for doing that with the father and, you know, telling the story of um, uh, of of what a great pitcher he was and not what his nickname was. Um, so that was interesting. And then, um, you know, it was just, it was, it was a great experience and, and it, it became an obsession. And, you know, I'd be up, uh, up late at the, at the library uh, going through microfilm. And it, that was the joy of it was just trying to piece together everything. Where my mind goes when I think about world war two baseball is, I think about the broadcasters who gave some time to Uncle Sam and in Kurt Smith's book, in Kurt Smith's book, Voices of the Game, it says Mel Allen was an artilleryman and Mm -hmm. Bob Elson was in the Navy. It's where he got his nickname in future years, the old commander. And the, the, the fact that these great men were serving Uncle Sam made for some gaping holes in the broadcasting world and Don Dunphy who's in the boxing hall of fame did his share of baseball while the others were fighting absolutely it, it was it was essential and president roosevelt uh you know as baseball was trying to decide whether or not to um go on during the um during the time period uh, president roosevelt and he was correct uh, that baseball was essential to the morale of the country, um, which is where the um, where the title of the book came for the good of the country, um, came from a letter that uh, President Roosevelt wrote, um, knowing that people like Dumphy and and you know some of these players who probably never would have played major league ball except for the fact they uh, they were either too old, too young to be part of the war effort, or had some injury that prevented them from being part of the war effort. Um, you know, but such great stories and, and, you know, people like Ted Williams, who John Glenn asked if I, if I had anybody to be my wingman, his choice was Ted Williams. He was as impressive, uh, a fighter pilot as he was a baseball player. Um, and, and eventually would go and be as impressive a fisherman. So this guy is, you know, somebody who, when he did something, he did it better than anybody. And, and, you know, he, he was that way in, in the war effort, uh, both in uh, 
um, in Korea and in World War II. I mean, imagine Babe Ruth wouldn't have held that home run record had he been able to play his full career. He had 521 homers with with two huge lapses because of the war. Uh, just an incredible, incredible player and an incredible American. Absolutely. That's Ted Williams. I'm talking to David Finoli, baseball writer. And I'm going to mention this book because in a recent episode, I mentioned the fact that the 1909 Tigers and Pirates each had a very lengthy winning streak during that season. And they ultimately met in the World Series. I mentioned that in the context of the Tampa Bay Rays 13-game winning streak to open up the season. And then I find out you've written a book called When Cobb Met Wagner. Let's talk about that book. Absolutely. To me, that was, I mean, it was the first seven-game World Series. I mean, at that point, they had played some best-of-nine series, um, but never had they had a series that went down to a final and deciding game until this one. To me, this this was the first championship that was theater. Um, you know, we would eventually go on to have Marino versus Montana, uh, Magic versus Bird. But this was this was the first one in sports in this country that, to me, was theater. It was the bad boy Ty Cobb versus, you know, the good sportsman um, Honus Wagner. Honest Wagner, in 1903, they were facing off against the Boston Americans in the first World World Series, and, and they were heavy favorites at the time to win. They had a lot of injuries, including Wagner, but when they had lost to Boston in that series, a writer from the Sporting News had called Wagner yellow, a coward for not playing his best. And that stigma had kind of stuck with him until he got an opportunity to play in this series. Cobb on the other end um, was a bad boy. And one of the, this, this was, I believe the third series in a row for Detroit and they had never had the opportunity to win one. Um, Cobb had an altercation with a hotel detective in Cleveland. Um, And the authorities in, in Ohio were um, um, waiting on his trail. Yeah, they were waiting for him to travel through the state to to pick him up. Yeah. So to avoid that, he had his uncle drive him through Canada, like up from Michigan to Canada, across and down to um, down to Pittsburgh, so he could avoid prosecution. Apparently, this so um, exhausted him; it was one of the reasons he had such a lousy series. And the Pirates ended up uh, winning, winning in seven games, the final game, um, an eight to nothing shutout uh, in Detroit um, to give Pittsburgh its first World uh, World Series title. Um, but, I mean, let's uh, put that in modern perspective. Just think, even riding in a modern 2023 vehicle from oh, yeah. Michigan to. Pennsylvania by circumnavigating Ohio, you're going to yeah. be dog tired even in a modern vehicle. But oh, he right. had he had to do it in a tin Lizzie over those so-called roads in 1909. You Abs- imagine how busted up he was. Absolutely, it was. Um, I, I mean, it was it was it was it would have been a horrible experience. I would have thought, and it, you know, he had a lousy series, and 
you know the iron the the irony of 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 it all was with these two two of the great stars of all time it was a young um um pitcher by the name of babe adams uh who eventually would be the star who got a um he, he had a nice year, but he wasn't one of Pittsburgh's. Pittsburgh had a great rotation back then, and, and Adams was not part of that. Um, but he got to start, uh, as the story goes. Um, National League president John Hyder felt that uh, um, he um, he reminded him of Dolly Gray, who um, I believe pitched for Washington and was very successful against Detroit, and suggested to Fred Clark that um, – um, that he pitched uh, Babe Adams in that first game. In reality, it was probably more or less Adams, who uh, I believe was 12 and three that year. I know he had a minuscule, uh, I believe 1.18 ERA, if I'm not mistaken, um, had been pitching well down the stretch. And probably Clark felt he was one of his hot pitchers at the time. And, and whereas I'm not sure what, if the story is correct or not, I, I would tend to lean towards uh, uh Clark going with the fact he was a hot pitcher. But anyways, he ends up winning three games, including the 8 nothing shutout in, in the final game and goes on to become, in my estimation, the greatest pitcher ever to put on a Pirate uniform. With David Finoli on the Baseball Lifer podcast. One of your many books, David, is called The Pittsburgh Pirates 1960 Season. Now, you and I are both too young to have gone to Forbes Field, but if, if I was given a time machine Forbes field is one place I would want to go. Absolutely. Um, a funny story, you know, my father went to the, um, went to the opener at three rivers in 1970. And I remember asking him, he was going with my uncle Vince and I remember asking him, dad, what was Forbes field like? And, you know, let's put in perspective, like a lot of, stadiums of the era it was not set up for fan comfort um there there was a left field stands where that blocked uh home plate from some seats um there were some posts in the stadium where you couldn't see well out of and he basically told me he goes son it was uncomfortable to sit in it smelled like urine and, and stale beer <laughs> so he was excited about three River stadium so he, he we were blessed to have him he, he lived to a hundred and, um, you know, I, 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 I remember I, you know, I was watching him one day, you know, we'd come over and take turns and I asked him, so dad, what do you think about Forbes field? Oh, I miss it so much. It was a great place to watch a game in. And he just it would give you a, you know, a different memory at that point in time of his life. Uh, cause you know, three rivers, let's face it. They had great memories in it, but it was, um, it was not a great baseball. It was a great football stadium. It was enclosed. The sound was deafening and it would intimidate opponents. But for baseball, it was kind of detached from the, um, from the field. And there weren't a lot of good angles and places to watch a baseball game in there. But, um, but I always chuckle and, and told him, dad, this is what you told me back then. And he would laugh. Um, but, you know, that was his, his place that he, you know, while he was excited to see Three River Stadium in retrospect, it was the memories of Forbes Field that that made it so special to him. Now, I don't have in front of me when 
the book, The Pittsburgh Pirates 1960 Season, came out. But talk to me about the research process that went into uh, that that book. Well, it's it's uh, the same that I use for everything. I, I, you know, I like interviews. Don't get me wrong. You get some nice angles there. But I, I just immerse myself in, in newspaper articles of the time period, um, building stories. Because what happens sometimes when people don't go back and, and, and get that kind of stuff, sometimes in interviews you're getting forgotten memories, remembering things that didn't necessarily happen uh, the way that the interviewer is remembering it. And that becomes the story. I like going back and getting the way building up the story through newspaper accounts, magazine accounts. Um, and you find a lot of things that end up getting lost in time, um, which I, I enjoy bringing back to, to life. So, um, you know, I, I started out with paper accounts in the, in 59, which was 58 was the year that this young pirate team, finished second surprised a lot i mean as bad as the 2000s were in pittsburgh baseball the early 2000s 1950s you had some bad lousy teams um as the pirates were building branch ricky doesn't get a lot of credit but you know he brought two of the greatest rule five draft picks in the history of the game and and roberto clemeni and and roy face drafted you know Vern law um bob friend so he had he had a lot to do with building that team but in 1958 with joel brown uh, making some uh, starting to make some moves to take the team to the next level they finish in second 59 uh, injuries kind of make them a 500 team stunt their growth a little bit so to speak and then 50 or 60 is when it all comes together in just a magical season and and you know so i i basically would go through um the articles of of the the 59 season to you know try to get perspective of of where they came from in 60 before you build in the uh going through game by game in 60 and and just you know trying to immerse yourself and imagining yourself in in such a magical season that you know i wish i, I would have had that experience um every, everybody i've talked to who who went through it or, or were at the game just you you just see the magic in their eyes, um, thinking about uh, thinking about the experience. But that that's basically how I pieced it together. And and as I always say, I love I love writing. Don't get me wrong, but it's the research that that I'm hooked on. With David Finoli on the Baseball Lifer podcast, your book coming out in September is Pittsburgh Sports in the 1970s. Now your most recent book, I almost missed because Amazon. Unfortunately, they buried it, but I found it eventually. It's called Where Pittsburgh Played, and that came out just last year. I'm guessing that's about the different sports venues in the city. Talk to me about that. Well, it's actually, I, I did that with um, uh, a couple of friends, uh, Tom Rooney, who was the former uh, uh, president of the Penguins, um, part of the Rooney family, and and uh, Doug Cavanaugh. Um, Bill Rainier, who I've done several things with, uh, Bob Healy. Um, it was basically about the Oakland section of Pittsburgh. And I always thought it was interesting. During, um, between uh, 1909 and um, 
1961, every major venue in Pittsburgh was within a couple blocks of each other in the Oakland section of Pittsburgh, where the University of Pittsburgh is. There was Pitt Stadium. There was the Duquesne Gardens, where the great minor league uh, uh, Pittsburgh Hornets played, and Duquesne University, who was among the top five uh, uh, basketball uh, team, won a national championship in 1955. They played at the Duquesne Gardens. Um, Forbes Field uh, was there, and the Fitzgerald Field House, uh, which uh, housed Pitt's basketball, Pitt's basketball team for so many years um, and Pitt Stadium, of course, which Pitt uh, won nine national championships, um, uh, the majority becoming at Pitt Stadium. Um, and um, they were all within one. So I, I, I started because right now they still have the Forbes Field wall constructed as it was in, in the Oakland section of Pittsburgh, which is a great memorial. So I started there walked uh walked up to uh the duquesne gardens then where the duquesne garden stood then the pitt stadium stood and then finally um um the fitzgerald field house and it was it only took 15 minutes to make that that circle and i i just kept thinking my god what to be a pittsburgh sports fan and be within walking distance of everywhere you know how how awesome that would have been and then we decided just to write a book about it and and cover some of the great moments in each stadium, um, which there were just so many. Last question for David Finoli. We've been talking about the books you've written. Is there anything else on the drawing board in the Finoli household? Well, we're actually um, uh, putting together a, a book right now that's going to um, celebrate the 50th anniversary of, of the Steelers' first uh, Super Bowl championship in 1974. And the premise of the book is not only that 74 season, but how the team was built. First, where it came from, as we said before, just how lousy the team was for so many years. And then we we the first half of the book is how that team was built between 1963 and 1974. Um and just takes you through the different philosophies of how they used to draft. And when Dan Rooney took over in the sixties, how they basically became a better team. Dan Rooney, Art Rooney was a beloved figure in, in Pittsburgh, but quite frankly, if they had had social media uh, during the thirties, forties and fifties, uh, he would have been cast out like Bob Nutting is right now because the teams were so bad. Um, and Dan Rooney just had a head for championships and what it, he needed to do to put together teams. And, and, you know, the book is going to take you through just those drastic differences of what made the Steelers a lovable loser into arguably the greatest dynasty in the history of, of the sport. We've been talking with David Finoli. You can look out in September for. Pittsburgh sports in the 1970s, triumphs, tragedies, and championships. They'll be out on September 4th. It can be pre-ordered right now from Amazon or anywhere else where you get your books. And David, I want to thank you for taking some time and joining me today. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Back with a word about next week's show in a minute, if you keep it right where it is. I'm having such a problem at work. It's the second time this month. I've got two computers down, 
and I can't get my computer repair company to come to the office to fix them. I think they are too busy with other bigger companies to help us. You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when our computers are not working properly. I need someone who can see what's wrong and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the internet these days. They've been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860. 732-356-8860, courtlandcomputerservices.com. Tell them you heard about them on the Baseball Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of services. Back on the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow here following an interview with David Finoli, the author of numerous books about Pittsburgh athletes and Pittsburgh sports teams going back to the origin of the Pirates. Next week, if you join us here for the Baseball Lifer podcast, I'm going to bring you a guy who does the same thing I do. He collects recordings of old baseball games. Eric Padden is his name, and before I bring him on, I'm going to share with you a few of the recordings I heard early on as a kid that made me want to ultimately collect recorded baseball broadcasts. That's what I began doing. I now have a collection of some 1,700 recorded baseball games from the early 1930s to today. Now, Eric Padden, who has a great many more of these recorded baseball games, is going to be our guest on next week's Baseball Lifer podcast. Until then, this is Don Wardlow. Thanks for listening to the Baseball Lifer podcast, and have a good week. Thank you.